Welcome to Anna Conversations with Myanmar. If you'd like to add your voice to the conversation here at Anna, please reach out to us through any of our social media platforms or you can email us directly. This conversation features John, a filmmaker from Myanmar. When the coup broke out in February, John, like so many others in the country, took to the streets to peacefully protest. He was arrested and spent 25 days in the notorious insane prison as a result of his peaceful resistance. John's experience in prison with other innocent people made him even more determined to continue to resist this illegal military coup. He decided to defend himself and his people, whatever the cost. Unable to go to the ethnic areas for training, he decided to join a People's Defense Forces group in Yangon. The continued widespread brutality of the military across the country prompted John to attend a series of defensive training seminars on Zoom. But a controversial article published in New Narrative exposed the seminar and put John and numerous other people in the country at risk and set their operations back considerably. Here John talks about his journey from filmmaker to PDF, the infamous New Narrative article that he felt was a betrayal of everyone who has sacrificed their life for their country and the wider consequences such reporting can have. This conversation was recorded a number of weeks ago. However, in the last few days, a number of PDFs, and suspected PDFs, have been arrested in Yangon. Images circulated by the military show clear signs of torture. Many of them are likely dead now. We are relieved to say that John is safe and secure, and is thankfully not one of those who was arrested we must stress how easily he could have been, and still could be at any time. After careful discussions with our team and John himself, we, on his request, decided to air his episode, as he wants his voice to be heard. He wants people to understand that he and all PDFs are normal people, who have no choice but to take this pathway in order to be free from military brutality and oppression. A large part of this conversation focuses on an article written and published in New Narrative that had significant consequences for John and other PDF members in terms of their safety, security and operations. At the request of John and other PDFs, we would like to ask people with influential platforms and those in positions of power to use this episode as an opportunity to reflect and consider the impact their tweets articles and reports can have on those on the ground. To our listeners, we would ask you to be mindful of what you are sharing and posting on social media and consider the impact this too can have on the ground. Please try to only share verifiable information from trusted sources in order to not inadvertently assist the military's propaganda operations. Let's start the conversation. So, John, thanks for talking to us today. And if you wouldn't mind just maybe sharing a little bit about yourself and who you are, just so our listeners can get a, a sense of you and what your life was before the coup in February this year. Yeah, so I'm a filmmaker. So my name's John. I was doing commercial filmmaking before the coup. And then, yeah, military coup happened. So after that, we went out to the streets protesting. And I was arrested for protesting and detained for about 25 days. And then, yeah, and then I got released again on some of the lists. So now I'm actively still just trying to be involved in the protest movements against the dictatorship. Just when you mentioned, John, protesting and being arrested, do you know how you get chosen to be arrested? Is it just a case of like wrong place, wrong time, being at the front of the lines or, or how does it work? Yeah, so when I was arrested, it was the time that they cracked down all the um, protests. So it was like a month in to military coup. So on the 1st of March, it was when they started to crack down the protest place. And yeah, so I was just at the one of the place protesting. And then when the crackdown happens, they pretty much raided nearby stores and restaurants. So, so I was in the restaurant and then got arrested from the restaurants. I don't know, John, if you want to share any of that experience, because I imagine it's uh, not a good one. Uh, well, I'm OK. I'm going to share a brief experience of it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I was arrested and then um, 
they put me into confinement, like they put us into the high security prison insane. And I was spent there for about 25 days without knowing that I'll get released anytime soon or like there's no access to healthcare or no access of information to outside, right? And then, yeah, and then on the 26th day, they just decided some of us will be released. So then I was part of that released people's list. We were interrogated at the prison. So they were beating some of us and then like trying to get the information out of us, like who funded us or who told us to go out and protest or like who is behind your action type of thing, where all my reply was, it was all our choice, right? Like we protest because we feel the need to protest and voice our actions. Do you think that they decided that you you were just protesters and that's why you guys got released and and other people are still inside? or, Or do you know why it was you versus other people? Well, in the period of the interrogations, I was kind of forced, not forced, but like I was kind of taught to not give out the full details of the protest and the protest movements. So I managed to dodge some bullets. So then they didn't caught me with any of the, how do you call it, any of the slingshots or all those stuff in hand or anything. I was just arrested only with my clothes and just me. So, um, yeah. So then I was part of the pardon list so you came out did you ever think maybe okay you know it's not worth all this that I will just try to kind of keep my head down because as you say you're still resisting now so that experience obviously didn't change your mind did it actually do the opposite yes and give me the opposite drive because when I was arrested with a lot of the fellow members like a lot of the other people who didn't actually do anything they were still wrongly accused of holding the weapons and like fighting against or resisting during the protest. So I've talked to a lot of people and those people that actually didn't have any weapons in their hands, but are accused of having those weapons. Those people were still being kept and like left behind in, in cells. So yeah, that was one of the main reasons that drove me to like keep moving ahead with the protest movements. So, John, obviously, it's very difficult now in Yangon and in Myanmar and in the cities. So how do you how do you operate now? Are you somebody that they're watching, somebody who they're aware of because you have spent those days in prison? Is it harder for you now? Well, luckily, I was released together with a lot of people. So I wasn't on their watch list because they couldn't specifically point out people to put onto the watch list. So I'm still kind of under the radar. Like I lock my Facebook profile and then I try to hide my all the visual identity. Yeah. So that's how I've still been trying to just do all the movements here. When you talk about like having to hide, you know, your identity and your Facebook, and we know so many people who are in the same situation. Are you worried about Dalans, about people in your area or your neighborhood or where you are that, that could report you? Yes. So I'm not staying at home. Because I have actually given them my home address. So I've been living away from my house where I was living. So now I'm living separate. And so, yeah. Um, and cause I'm from like, I'm, I live in so which is a high area of activities and like still to this day, like activities still happens in where people were doing some protest and movements. So yeah. I have to like stay away from. Yeah, it is a hot spot. We even saw yesterday some really powerful protests in that area again. Um, so people have not, yeah, stopped. So what's your kind of day-to-day life now? I imagine like it's a lot of trying to lay low, stay at home, but obviously you guys are trying to help the resistance too. So how, how do you do that in, in the current situation? Well, after I come out, we were still like trying to protest on the road, but then after I was released, right? So the resistant movement has divided into three different movements where the protest still happens. And then the other thing is the armed resistance happens and then the CDM of the police and all that, right? So like for the armed groups to leave their positions and join the people's side. Out of those three, so I, some of my friends and some of the people I know also joined the armed resistance and like armed fighting ways. So yeah, from then I have sort of reduced some of my movement from protest and switched my support towards the other two amongst the movements, which is the armed resistance and the CDM. So I'm like, I can't personally go out, like I'm not the 
hardcore type of person. So I, I wasn't like personally going out. I wasn't going to personally go out and like shoot or like choose the violent way to do it. But then I kind of noticed after going through insane and after going through all that period, I kind of noticed that is the only way that they were getting our protest message across. So I saw that as one of the resolution of the protest for the dictatorship to just like get their eyes awakened and respect the people. So John, you said you were a filmmaker. This must have turned your life upside down. Did you ever imagine this that you'd be this involved in trying to change the the politics of your country? Um, yes, it definitely have because since February one, we stopped all the production that was supposed to happen, and then we just went out onto the streets and start protesting and everyone right. And so it has completely turned upside down in a sense because um, a lot of the people, a lot of the celebrities who have actively spoken out are also now like on the run because they, yeah, they spoke out against injustice. So yeah, a lot of people get, especially a lot of the film industry, people get arrested. And then some of the, not some, a lot of them are still in prison and some of them are still on the run. So yeah, so it has changed my life completely. Was there any part of you that was tempted not to? No, because we've lived through this period, right? Before, since the early 2000s, all my life, when we grew up, we grew up with military dictatorship. But then I was privileged enough to explore some of the parts of the other countries. So then I see how actually human rights is like really powerful and all that stuff. So it kind of forced me to, yeah, it was never a question for me to like not speak up about it and stay quiet. It's very brave. Very brave. Thanks. I think just even picking up on that, like, as you say, you know, it's very far removed from anything your life was before. You know, you're not like a very political person. You know, you're a filmmaker. I'm sure your life was was so different. But we have seen, obviously, a turn in events over the last while. We have saw the brutal crackdown by the military. And we saw the peaceful resistance all around the country. But we have seen people joining PDFs, starting to set up their own People's Defence Forces and basically defending themselves and picking up whatever they have to uh, in order to protect themselves, their families, and their, you know, their neighbours, their villages. So what are your thoughts on, on this? Um, I fully support them because we were protesting without using any force or like non-violent protests as early stages right non-violent protests we were doing but like i said they were not taking any actions it's international was not doing anything about it no one was doing anything about it and then they were just shooting at us and there were times when the protesters were defending themselves with like firecrackers firecrackers and all those stuff so now when people actually decided to take the actual arms and go against them for yeah part of me fully support it I have like come across a lot of people saying all these comments towards us um in the earlier days, like uh, not even earlier days, even up to today, like people were like saying, you know, using the violence doesn't solve anything or like it's not right to like use violence and like, how do you call it? It's not right to use violence in response because of how, um how things should be and like, I feel like in the normal context of it, it's true. And like, I truly respect their point of view because, yeah, because like we don't want to use violence and these scare tactics and threats as a means of way, but this is what they've used on us. Yeah, this is exactly what they have used and they have put us through. So it's like when I have to like go through and live the moment of those brutalities and I feel like for the higher ups, right, for the junta, I don't feel them responding any other ways. I don't think there is any other ways for Junta to respond, if you get what I mean. There was an article, a very infamous article, um, published in New Narrative, uh, written by the Burmese-American writer, journalist, uh, Amin Tan, about, in, if I was to use their sensationalist headline, a bomb-making class attended by And you wrote an open letter in response to that. Is that correct? Yes. I'm going to be very upfront with our listeners that here at Anna, we were really furious about this whole article. So I'm not even going to pretend that we're very, very impartial here. Like we were, you know, disappointed in the article for a number of reasons, you know, but we would be interested to obviously hear from you as somebody who 
who was involved in attending some of these classes and also has written publicly about um, your feelings on the article. Um, so just even in terms of when you first saw the article, um, how did you feel about it? What was your immediate reaction? So when I first saw the article, there was three three things that came to me, right? There were who wrote this, right? So who was the writer behind this article? Like, what is your idea message for this whole article? But, um, yeah, that's what that's, that's what came to my mind first. Yeah, so then when I read through it, I feel like it was written by someone who, like, I was more furious about the article because it was written by a Myanmar person and it was written in a way that it was not justifying how Myanmar people are responding to the current situations in Myanmar. And like, let's face it, at that time when I saw the article come out, NUG government has already announced the revolution, like resistant days, right? Like with the government has already announced that, that we will use every force we can to resist the regime and take down the tyrant type of thing. And then the article come out and it was, yeah, it was written by someone from Myanmar and then it was written in a way like it just doesn't have a clue of how Myanmar people are really feeling and like where Myanmar people anger and frustrations are coming from. Just picking up on that there in terms of the article, I, I kind of feel similar. Like I was like, what is the message? Like, I, I mean, you know, I didn't get the article. I still don't fully get the article, what it, what the intended message was. It was very all over the place. Um, the headline didn't match anything to do with the actual article. So it kind of seemed a little sensational in that regard. When you figured out who wrote it, I guess, like it was this journalist, did you remember ever seeing that journalist in any of these meetings? Like, was that like a sense of this person? Were they undercover? Were they openly there? Like, what was their deal? Like, was that a betrayal of people's trust? Or did you know that this person was kind of monitoring these meetings you were attending? No, I was very... um So when I noticed that this article was written by someone who has attended, right? And the way that they presented the article. And yeah, no, because during the trainings, I was present at the training. So during all these like sessions of demonstrations and like some questions and answerings, like a lot of the people were not very vocal or active about things, but only those, there wasn't any like questions or comments about how the things were being said. And some of it, some of the things that were said in the articles were entirely like not true anyway too. There was some points where Mark was like talking about how these are the sensitive informations and like all these materials and all these explosive things that he's showing are like highly sensitive and like, you know, it comes with a huge responsibility and the risk to the person who's going to be handling them. And so like me as a people who's attending, we knew all those risks and we knew all those things. But like, yeah. So when the article came out and when they were like secretly attending and then like writing about it, it feels like a violation of, I don't know, like trust towards. Yeah. It's a violation of trust in a way because like everyone who's attending these trainings is still happening to these days. Like we still need to attend different trainings all the time because yeah, these. These are the trainings that will only get us some knowledge of how to learn new skill sets, right? Or like how to respond to military behaviors or like how to monitor or see how military is acting and behaving type of things. Yeah. So this is an online seminar. This is an online lesson to help people defend themselves. Is is that what you were attending? Yes. So- yeah. And how did you hear about this? How was this known? And was this a new thing or has Mark been involved before? Or what was the situation in terms of how this came about? Was this one in a session of these? And how did Mark get involved? Do you know the answers to those things? I don't exactly know how Mark got involved, but it was at some point the seminar came about to me as a way to like learn new skills, right? Because we were actively trying to resist and protest to the military. So at the point, at the time when I was still like attending the seminars, like I was also still going out on the street protesting during some of these arrests. Only now that I kind of stopped in that protest area a bit. But yeah, so um, it came about to me as I, because there were sectors where a lot of people went to the actual armed ethnic groups 
armies to train for these military trainings and like to respond to military. And a lot of the people who stay in the urban, like people like me, like we couldn't get access or like we couldn't commit ourselves to go through all those to to those areas and to do all those trainings. So we try to learn it from online and then just like absorb the information in like to respond to the crisis that might happen again, right? I think that's actually like a quite a good point you make because I, I actually had never really thought of that. But like this is very similar to those who are going into the ethnic areas for training. I mean, as you say, you guys just didn't have the for whatever reason you weren't in a position to travel and you took similar training online. I'm just realizing that some of our listeners may not know about this article. I think a lot will just to to kind of reverse there a little bit, just to kind of explain that this article, um, it was written, you know, with a sensational headline, you know, Dr. Sasa visits a bomb making class. And then it said, you know, months before Myanmar's shadow government declared war on the military, an American gun enthusiast taught activists to build crude bombs that could kill soldiers and civilians alike. So this was kind of the sensational like way in which it was it was sold. And Mark is the guy that has been mentioned. Is this American gun enthusiast, as he's described in the article? Just even that saying bombs to kill civilians and soldiers. Like, I mean, like it doesn't sound to me, John, like that was the intention of why people were there. It's that people were there to learn defensive techniques, ways to help themselves and not to kill civilians. You know, so I mean, things like that. I have an issue with just reading it, you know, knowing um, people like uh, you and other people I know who are in really difficult situations are trying your best to cope and to survive. So Mark is an American guy who does these trainings online, but there does seem to be like, I've read this article many times and I, I don't understand it. I still like do not fully understand the article because this gun enthusiast, I mean, he, he's been painted as this like crazy guy. Well, he sounds like a pretty decent guy in all the quotes that they have from him. Like, this is what doesn't add up for me. I'm like, yeah. if I look just directly at his actual quotes, he seems like a kind of nice guy. Like, you know, I mean, I don't know him, but it just doesn't match, you know. So um, what was your experience of, of Mark? Can you just tell us a little bit about him so we can kind of understand that a little bit more? Yeah, I mean, like Mark was giving out the seminars with a really good intention of heart. There was one point of moment when he was talking about how ruthless the military can be like we can witness like his emotions and like him like really genuinely caring for the people being like abused by the power of the arms and guns when he talks this goes out to even to american military right like there was some, some point when he was even saying how American military will also be forced to act upon the civilians when they were needed to in some certain areas of their conflicts. When the civilians are caught in a crossfire, is like they cannot take civilians be in charge and all this stuff. So Mark was like really saying it in a genuine effort of like, yeah, for us to really defend in a way like if we don't want to be crossed in the crossfire of two sides of the war happenings and the best thing for civilian to do is to just run and not stay in the area right so yeah he was a really genuine guy and like when he was like giving us the information and teaching all those knowledge for us about the wars and like how the behaviors of war can affect people that yeah it was a really eye-opening thing for us and it was yeah so he was that type of a person and to go back to your comment on the article and the thing as well i feel like when you look at the title, it was a kickbait. And then when you look at the content, it was like really just trying to get the attention over to the way that the journalists want to present it or how the platform wants to go about with it. That's how I see it personally. When I read it, I'm like, this is coming from someone who just doesn't really know Myanmar at all. And then, and then yeah, it was written by a Myanmar person who is still now actively still talking about and like representing Myanmar and talking and commenting about the current issues in Myanmar, right? Where they clearly doesn't stand with the Myanmar people and how Myanmar people are feeling, but only for their self-interest, I guess. Yeah, I mean, I, I do have like, and again, a lot of the issues I have with the article, I probably need to take up with the writer of the article in order to, because the only ones who can answer some of these questions that I have in terms of their intention. But I mean, it, it does feel to me that the, the biggest crime, you know, this American guy, Mark, committed um, in terms of the way the article is written is that he pronounced the word Myanmar wrong. <laughs> and it really it feels like there's such a an anger in the article over this. Like, I mean, I've just watched Sky News yesterday and someone said Myanmar, like I, Myanmar. Like, I mean, 
this is said wrong. Like I've heard countless experts, people say my name wrong all the time and I don't take offense. I mean, you know, it, it seems like a little kind of such a silly thing to be kind of discrediting a person for, you know, the wrong pronunciation as if they couldn't know the country. But I'm also yeah, thinking, exactly. yeah, sorry, the other thing, John, is that I'm thinking, knowing Myanmar people the way that I do, I know that anyone who maybe invited Mark or was taking those lessons from Mark would be very upset or embarrassed that he has been shamed in the way that he has because, you know, I just know people I know would be really hurt if they thought that, you know, someone was trying to help them and then somebody else has actually gone and exposed them and put them in a, a difficult position. Yeah, definitely. I mean, the one thing that I would like to add on that is that, John, you've said you were surprised he was a Myanmar person and Suzanne, you said in terms of the Myanmar people that I know, they'd be devastated. I think we've got to remember there's a lot of different objectives here and there's a lot of different reasons to want to promote something. And I think as uh, people reading news articles, we need to be aware of that as well. Obviously, not everyone is anti this coup and not everyone is anti their own agenda. So just because you are a national from a country doesn't always mean that you have the best intention. Yes, true. Like I get that as well, but it was infuriating because it's crisis, right? Like we're having the national crisis and then like they're getting their, I don't know, salary, fame, fortunes and all that stuff going along with the article and like bandwagoning on the wrong information and feeding the um, feeding the public in the international public the wrong information and then just yeah just riding on that bandwagon which is not ethical in a way for me I feel like because it has happened in the past for Myanmar like even for me as well like when Rohingya crisis and all that stuff happens like military was feeding these type of like wrong unethical type of information towards the main mainland and Yangon and like big cities areas that like nothing was happening in, in the Rakhine state or like no um, big issue was happening in Rakhine state and we were being fed those lies and um, lies and misinformations for months and decades like even till now o- only now we were like we were eye-opened about the Rohingya crisis and all that stuff so yeah these articles like that and like th- these people are really dangerous in the sense that they have like yeah they have to be called out and like it, that's what forced me to come out and like speak about it in person as well because like yeah they have to be called out for their actions and said like this is not right in the way that you're doing like no matter what like yes everyone have their own opinion but sometimes it's best to just keep your opinion to yourself I guess. One of the things I wonder as well um, in terms of publishing an article like this what is the intended purpose like I mean it never fully revealed itself to me reading it. And that's just reading it. And I'm reading that now as an English teacher whose job it is to read articles to understand meaning. And I really don't get the intended meaning. But what I get from your letter in response, uh, John, is what I wanted to ask about is the risks that you felt that placed on you guys. Because obviously, None of you can publicly speak back out. Well, I mean, obviously you're speaking here on a podcast and, you know, we've got levels of safety and security, but it's still there's risks attached. But no one could come out and refute the article because then they would be exposing themselves even further. And then I imagine if you attended this meeting and you didn't know somebody was there operating kind of as a journalist in a covert manner and they have screenshots and they've been recording like that you would be very feeling very vulnerable that they could expose you or accidentally on purpose they could be hacked there's there's so many worries there but just talk to me about how as a participant you feel you were put more at risk um as a result of the article than before the article before the article i have hide my identity quite well and like you know i i'm still like actively moving around town and okay but like since the article come out and it was um yeah it was a huge drawback for me and my movement and my actions in downtown Yangon as well because I I feel the need to respond and but then like when I have to respond and even write the letters I know that the risk that this type of person have put me in it has kind of like pushed me three steps back to like what I was actively doing at that moment because I I had to like go through all my past records of how the involvement has happened and then like so I had to like because after the training there were some people that I personally spoke on the side 
So I had to like shut off my connection with those people because I don't know if they can be trusted, right? Because there's clearly someone in there who isn't just trying to learn and like who isn't just on the same page as us. And this is what we've assumed during the seminars. It's like, okay, like we're all on the same page. We're all here with one intention. And that is just to bring Myanmar back to the track that it was already. Do you think the author of the article realized how vulnerable that they were making people by writing it, by producing it? Sadly, I don't think they care. (laughs) It's the the response that I got. Like, because I don't think they cared in a sense when I write that open letter, right? Like, they managed to reply with, I don't know, seven threats or like seven threats of fully pointing out details of like, at this point, what is the response? But in the end, like, I know that they didn't care because on the last point that they were threatening out, they were like, instead of taking it down, here's the Myanmar version of it so that Myanmar people can read it. So that's when, um, yeah, that's the point when I know, like, they clearly doesn't care about someone's safety or anything. And that Myanmar version of the article was issued and, like, featured in um, I don't know if you've noticed, but like just recently, it has been featured in military propaganda news page. I mean, that, that makes perfect sense to me because that's obviously the objective that it's coming from, really. I, I wasn't aware that it had appeared in a military paper. Oh, my goodness. Like, uh, I mean, because that is military propaganda at its best. I mean, and whether that was the author's intention, I guess we won't know until we ever get the opportunity to speak to them directly. But there's a couple of things that just even just as a reader uh, and even not being involved in, let's say, Myanmar. And obviously, I know I'm completely, you know, biased because, um, you know, these are real people that I know that are in these situations who are good people. They would never, ever have dreamed in a million years they would ever be sitting in a, a class learning how to, you know, make a bomb, for example, uh, even though that wasn't what the majority of the classes were. But certain things like, I mean, you know, it feels like I get a personal attack on this American guy, you know, that whatever his crime he's committed. But I, I imagine like, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, John, but he's chatting to you guys in these seminars. Like he's just having a chat as he goes. Like that's not like, oh, I'm giving you factual history lessons. Like that's not what he's there to do. That's not his area of expertise. His area of like, expertise is in security and defense. Is that right? Were these things yeah. like secondary little kind of conversations that are like kind of humoring you guys as you were going along? Yeah, like it was very conversational. But um, I think one of the other problem is that like not a lot of people were speaking up mm-hmm. or like speaking with him. So there wasn't a lot of like bouncing ideas or like talking back and forth except like one or two person. Mm-hmm. So a lot of the people were just like kind of sitting in the dark and you know um yeah sitting in the dark and just listening and then things like this happen someone just come out with the articles and fully attacking the man who was just trying to help yeah i mean for me i can get my head around okay you're thinking this person is doing worse for the country this person's putting people in danger by making them violent what i cannot justify and can only see as a human like basic decent response if someone has reached out to you and said this article has put me in danger the fact that you've published this i was there this is not correct and you are harming me by this and for them to then say oh i'm going to republish it for a language so that everyone else can understand it that is like the fundamental thing that is is so wrong in terms of a response and the lack of responsibility as a journalist there yeah exactly that's where i also like i got some calls from my friend to like you know deactivate my facebook or like to like try and just like not go in respond to this person anymore because he might be related to junta's and like gonna put me at high risk and i'm like i hadn't considered until you said it there john that like yeah like you guys all were in this together thinking that you were all on the same side and you were making personal contacts to meet outside of the meetings like that is extremely worrying then to know that there was people operating there whose intentions were obviously not transparent and honest. I didn't even consider that actually some of you would be meeting up outside like that. When you said that there, I'm just like, wow, that, yeah, of course you would be like absolutely like terrified of how exposed you would be uh, if those people were also operating, you know, for the military, if somebody had infiltrated it. I mean, a journalist has infiltrated it. Do you know how they ended up in those meetings? Like, were they invited by a trusted person? I mean, I think if I remember correctly, they said something like anyone with a Zoom link could have went. I mean, I find that hard to believe because I attend a lot of even advocacy Zoom meetings around the world. 
And there's always a passcode. There's always you have to know someone to get the meeting code in the first place. That's my own personal experience. I would imagine this is something similar. Yeah, I think they try to put themselves into these meetings intentionally, right? Because from a lot of people, that's why um, these meetings were a bit like, I mean, that's when I noticed after the article, I noticed like, oh, like how riskful those meetings were because not a lot of people were genuine. But like for us, the genuine people who needs the actual help, we push and like we just put ourselves forward and then just say like, okay, this is what we need and this is what we need to learn. And then who's willing to give us this knowledge of how things are. And then Mark was the person to step forward. And then that's how we met. I mean, that's how we met as in like, that's how I was like, you know, put into these meetings. But this person clearly has like the ill intention to, I don't know, like, I don't know if they have an ill intention to sabotage someone or they just have that intention of trying to claim as a news piece. And for them, it was just only a news piece, right? Like for them, it wasn't anyone's lives that they're going to put in danger or it's not anything but just work for them, I guess. Yeah, I mean, like, I have a lot of issues, I say, with, with the article from a number of perspectives. But like, one of the things, like the headline was, uh, for me now, that was just clickbait, sensationalist, because the article did not reflect the headline. And this this idea that, oh, Dr. Sasa, who, you know, is a man of peace, and who's been the face of, of you know, the government has attended for 20 minutes. But I mean, when you read through the article, these seminars were going on for months before there was even an NUG, before NUG even existed. These meetings were taking place. So, I mean, it's for 20 minutes, he showed up, took no part in the seminars. This is what I get from the article, the actual words in the article, you know, gave a little pep talk to everyone as in like, you know, who's who's suffering at the hands of the military and, you know, keep going and well done to everyone for your help. And then he left. And, you know, so it just it just seemed like as a journalist, knowing, you know, that this person is a good person and even the quotes from him suggest that and to not give him the benefit of the doubt and to try to, I mean, discredit him. I, I don't know. It doesn't sit well with me. Were you in the meeting, John, when Dr. Sasa showed up? Yes, I was in that meeting, coincidentally. So um, at that time, right? So there was the two side of it. Like, yes, when Dr. Sasa came and like we were all just like, oh, hoping he was going to say something informative in a way for us to drive the movement. But all he did was just do the prep talk of how they're just trying to support with the best they can for people they have their hand reach out to, right? So I think he was only coming in to give like moral support. And so that's the only thing I got from him. And so, yeah, even like to this day, there was some, even inside the country, like people who are still like actively working now, we were all only driven forward with our own intentions and with no one's influence on our actions and we're like taking full responsibility for our own actions and we're we're working with these um explosive materials with our own safeties and our own risk so like the best he could do was just come in and give support so and that's what he did yeah that's what he did only so for me part of me was like frustrated because he only did that but then on the other part of me when i think about it but that's the only thing that one can do right I mean, like, if we even think about, like, Ruth saying she knows somebody who attended one of these in Myanmar, in person, not online with an American. So, like, these things are happening. And it seems like, you know, getting somebody in, I mean, I guess, you know, it makes it safer if this person knows what they're talking about. If people are doing this anyway, or they're watching YouTube videos and they're trying to teach themselves, um, which is happening. We know this is happening. So, but is, like, a lot of the suggestions in the article was this guy... He was a nut job, you know, this kind of white dude, doesn't know what he's doing, can't even say the name of the country right. He's a cowboy. And, and that's what it seemed to be suggesting. But the quotes in the article did not match that narrative. You know, the quotes actually, if you just take away all the things around the quotes, just read the guy's quotes, it's not the impression I get. So if he was what they're presenting him as, where are the quotes to back up that? That's what I would be asking. But I'm just thinking in terms of Mark teaching this stuff, to you guys, have you used any of this? Has it been practically possible to use any of it? Like you mentioned in your letter about like learning how to, you know, if a, if a bomb comes through your door or if soldiers come, like how to quickly maneuver, defend, you build a wall. Like has any of it been useful yet or have we got to that point? Well, um, for me, as I said, because I was based in the urban and I didn't actually go out to the armed group to do the physical mm -hmm. training. 
So it was all for me, like I absorbed it in a way that only as um, survival information. So for now, it has only been for me in a case of like survival information. I'm like, but like those informations were really helpful because after I attended the seminar, after some of the talk, it was when military has used heavy weapons and burned the Trantalan town. The one in the Chin state, um, I don't know if the, like the name was correct, but so yeah, it was that. In the Chin State, they use full force and like, so we see the, we see the videos of like the buildings being like burned down and like, we see the buildings like being like burned and like the news of how military was using all these heavy artilleries on the civilian populations. Mm-hmm. If I was right. in those areas, then I would have been able to apply to it. But mm-hmm. what I could apply now, so like right now, still even in Yangon, like some parts like PDF was still like have the bomb threats and like they will still make some bomb movements. Now, like from that, I know how to respond, right? And like I know how some parts of military is going to behave and like I know how some parts of this explosive is going to behave. Yeah. Like the other thing that kind of stood out to me in the article is that it lacked context. You know, and that's what really, I think, frustrated me the most, that if somebody I knew in the Western world read that article, they wouldn't have the context, you know. They think, oh, my God, look at these people in Myanmar, you know, learning how to make bombs, killing innocent people, and with no context to what they have gone through since the 1st of February. And I think that was really irresponsible, especially knowing that the majority of the readers are going to be Western readers. It's new narrative. It's in English. I felt that that was a disservice to the people of Myanmar who have sacrificed so much since February. And I think the other thing in the response, as you said, you wrote a very public open letter that kind of, you know, was trending around Myanmar, Twitter and Facebook. And the writer did respond. Again, I would have more questions for the writer about the response than for you. But one of the things it said, and I would be interested to hear your response to it, is that people need to take responsibility for their own safety. You know, that's not that's not the author's job, you know. So what, what what would you say to that? You should take responsibility for your own safety, you know? Yeah, um, I think that's where the controversy happens with their own words. Like them saying the training and the seminar being out of context where they're the actual person who are out of context from what's currently happening in Myanmar type of thing. Like they said, like in one of their previous article, they wrote like they were also reporting in like front line when the military was cracking down the protest. So they've probably already witnessed how military was shooting at unarmed civilians. And then so for civilians now to fight back in the context of like resisting or like self-defending, and then they go out of context and then they wrote all these full article about how, yeah, for me, I feel like the article was pushing towards like their response Mm -hmm. on like, oh, peaceful resolution should be the way type of thing but them having just out of context in their own word. I mean, Suzanne, if you're saying they said that they should be responsible for their own safety, surely that's exactly what people are doing by attending these. I mean, you've got children being shot in the head and people peacefully, like, queuing for oxygen getting shot at. This isn't... Yeah, and, like, I don't... Sorry, I'm sorry to cut you off, but, like, I don't want them to be, like, the bigger person and, like, they're not coming in and saying like, oh my God, these explosives are so dangerous. You're so irresponsible to just throw this information out to public. Not, not to public, but right to us, right? But that time, we are already dealing with all these issues. Like we are dealing with like, how do you call it? We're dealing with bullets flying over our heads. So like the only way we can deal how to respond and like re, um, retaliate to those violence is I'm sorry to say, but like when war happens, it's violence versus violence. And they just want to be the bigger person. Like for me, some parts of that article feels like they want to be that bigger person of like, oh, how um how irresponsible of you type thing to the Myanmar people. When they were saying it to the mentor, right? Like they're saying it to the Myanmar people as well. And like, this is, we know our risk. I know my risk of going out to the street to protest. I know I'll get arrested or get shot at since day one. And it was like our action and we're doing it anyway. And since day one, we're crying for help from like from all the political party and from the military leader to step down with no violence or like without having to have any bloodshed or anything. But then no response was given in return. So then like 
now at this stage in Myanmar is the way that people have to go. And some people have to go and like risk all these carrying all these bombs and safeties, um, unsafe materials and like go through the trainings and go through all these sacrifices that we had for the freedom per se. I mean, for me, I think it's quite obvious that there's very different experiences of this coup within Myanmar. Like this right to this author may have been part of a protest, but I would assume has not been exposed to the reality of what it's been like since then. I mean, if you look at Myanmar as a whole, you've just mentioned Chin State, which is, you know, in a dire state right now. Things have not changed for the people in Rakhine State in terms of the Rohingya crisis. It's going to be dependent on where you are in in the country as to how affected by this coup you are. There are still people living in Yangon whose lives are quite removed from the reality of what this coup is. Um, I know there is a lot of people that are not as well, but what I'm getting at here is maybe the person that wrote this article has had a very different experience of the reality of it. And if you have, then they haven't got an awareness of what is going on for everyone. So to write from one objective of one experience is it's very irresponsible as a journalist. John, were you ever given the opportunity to respond by new narrative? I'm just curious if they contacted you ever or did they have the details of the participants or was anyone offered um, to respond? Um, No, even when I wrote the open letter, um, some of the people like followed me back on Twitter, but then no one actually reached out to me in details of like how I feel or like why I feel this way from their side. No. Which again, you know, it, it's not getting a complete picture, you know. And the other thing actually, just I actually meant to say it and I don't think I did or if I did, I'm repeating myself. I was trying to figure out the problems of number one, you know, the writer definitely doesn't like the American dude. I have established this from reading the article. Number two, they are against violence, which I totally have no objection to. Um, but the article did not reflect that and was not written in the best way to promote that. If that's what the intention was, they, they failed. Like, I mean, if I was marking this and they did it in school, they would be getting a very low grade with a huge amount of feedback on how to get your argument and your point across better. OK, so talk, let's talk about this for a moment in terms of PDFs. You know, there has been cases of civilians being injured. This does happen in the crossfire, but perhaps. They had intended maybe to try to highlight this danger, you know, that this guy is teaching people how to do things. And actually, some people, innocent people, are getting injured. Perhaps it's what the article meant to say. And is that a fair thing to say, that there are, you know, dangers of this violence for regular, ordinary civilians in places like Yangon? Um, Not if you're in the, like, not if you're a Myanmar person listening to Myanmar news and, like, following Myanmar's movements, right? Because I don't know if you heard, on the 44th Street, when the police raided five teenagers, five PDF, how do you call it, PDF um, activists, five of us, when the police raided their home, they jumped off from the building and committed a suicide because we were dedicated. And like since day one, we've been talking and we've been dedicated to not harm the civilians in any ways. So those that jumped off, they have, artillery is enough to like blow up the whole building they may have it in their hand like they can just use the gas stove in their house to like blow up the building right but that will risk the civilians casualties from the neighboring house so like we the frontline fighters of this revolutions like we are not we're not going by those type of morale of like civilian casualties are inevitable so we are going with the movement of like the civilian casualties must be kept to like not even to minimum like we should avoid civilians casualty at all costs is the way of the PDF fighters movement. And I think that's an important thing to remind people that you guys who attended these meetings are the same as those young people who jumped off that building and jumped to their deaths rather than being captured by the military. This is who we're talking about. And again, this article just does not capture that in any way, shape or form. So like for us who are very plugged into what's happening in Myanmar, we know about this. You know, we know what people are suffering. But for people in the Western world who might pick up this new narrative article and don't know and don't have that context are going to have a, an inaccurate, I guess, picture of the situation in Myanmar where the people are the bad guys. Like, I mean, if ever there was a clear cut bad guy, good guy situation, we have it in Myanmar right now. And I think that's what just infuriates me with this article. 
because I do feel like it was clickbait and I felt that the Twitter responses to your letter suggested it was quite personal. It felt like people started to try and bury the story. Of course they did. Of course people tried to bury the story, you know, but I, I feel like maybe because people tried to stop it, there was a sense that the writer felt I'm, you know, I'm the one they're trying to, you know, stop me from speaking truth. So I'm going to keep pushing it rather than actually saying, well, on this occasion, perhaps there's a very good reason people don't want this published, you know. And again, as you say, the only people it's harmed is you guys. You know, it hasn't harmed Dr. Sasa, hasn't harmed the NUG. If that was the intention of the sensationalist headline to do some damage to the NUG or to Dr. Sasa, it didn't do that. It didn't have any effect on him, really. Um, but you guys, it has directly affected you. And that's that's the sad thing that's come out of it. And that rather than an apology and a reflection and we could have done better, you know, we'll, we'll republish it in Burmese and we'll stick it in a military propaganda paper. Nope. Yeah, that's really like rubbing it in our face, like not even rubbing, like slapping it in our face. Like, oh, here's a Myanmar version of it. <laughs> yeah, it does just sound to me like propaganda. Like it, it's to deter people from defending themselves. It doesn't even oh, sound yeah. like the, the author had good intentions. Yeah, and like um to keep it in mind as well, right? When we were fed with the misinformation from military for Rakhine State, in all the Rakhine news, we as Myanmar were said that Rakhine people were killing the civilian in Rakhine state. So like, that's another important point I want to get across as well. Right now, they point out to PDF, oh, now PDF is killing and raping, like killing and raping villagers, where like, they will also have a task force who act as a civilian type of armed resistance group, and then who actually try to create this chaos within the chaos. So yeah. So in response to a type of action, like that's when I feel like a very dangerous person in that sense because just, like I don't know if he was stepping on those toes not knowingly or knowingly, but I feel like like doing it on purpose and like knowingly. So the information is like always being misleaded by these louder propaganda and like louder activists per se or journalists who have more access to the Western media. Yeah, like, to be honest, there's been a series of articles, like, by other writers as well, for Western media. There was a really terrible one in The Economist just recently as well. And these things are so dangerous. I cannot stress this wrong information. A half story, you know, not researched fully, misinformation. It can literally get people killed. You know, I can't stress it enough. It's so irresponsible. And I don't know if it's lazy journalism, if it's rushed, if their sources are bad. Like some people are writing about Myanmar whose sources are from, you know, the 90s. You know, sorry, you got to change. Yeah. Your you know, we're, we're a couple of decades in now and Myanmar has changed dramatically. But like for me, on a personal level, like I know so many people who have joined PDFs, who joined the resistance who are normal people. They're nurses, they're doctors, they're school teachers. They're the quietest, most innocent girls, boys you'd ever meet in your life. Like my brain cannot comprehend that this is their life now. You know, so it's very easy for me to sit here and go, oh, you know, nonviolence is the way. I mean, yes, I'm very safe where I am right now. I mean, it would be, I think it's insulting for anybody who is not there and is not fighting for their lives to turn around and tell anyone that they should take the moral high ground and, you know, accept brutality. Because really, you're going to have to just lie down and die if you don't fight back at this point. For me, it's not even fight back. Like, if I was a parent in Myanmar and I've seen those kids be shot in the head, I would be drilling my kids on what to do to get the hell out of there and defend yourself in any way you can so that my child's not one of those ones that is killed by the military. You've literally got a military killing children, killing its people. Like we that said the other day, like, I was told to go on birth control when the coup happened because this is this is the reality of what people are having to live through. I don't think it's even a matter of pro-violence. It's a matter of defence, isn't it? And I think we see like these people protesting in places like Yangon, we, uh, Mandalay now even. And I was asking somebody, what's with, you know, the smoke, you know, all the colourful smoke. And that's like, oh, that's so they don't get a sniper headshot. Like, I mean, you know, that so they blow these kind of smoke things up so that they can't get a clean shot at their heads when they're running through a market protesting. I mean, that's peaceful protesting and you're trying to avoid getting shot in the head. Because we know it's military policy to shoot in the head, to shoot to kill. So I'm, I've just been pointed in the direction of this economist article. I'm just absolutely disgusted this kind of stuff's going on. Absolutely disgusted. 
And the point is like, that's where a lot of people are get like in the West are get their information, policymakers, the people who make decisions. That's why it's so dangerous. Um, and I can't stress it enough. I would love to get to the bottom of this article because it's just so unhelpful. It's just, it helped nobody. It didn't help them. Maybe they got some money off the article. Maybe the clickbait helped but didn't help anyone on any side. Might help the military a little bit if they've just recently published it in their propaganda place. But, um, you know, because they'll be saying, oh, foreign guy, you know, coming in, trying to, like, they'll be selling that story to the pro-military people. The Americans are trying to come in, look, this American guy, like, that, that's what they'll sell. So it might help them in that regard. I don't see how it will help anybody else. Yeah, I, it might be their sole purpose of it, right? Like to just spread that propaganda across the platforms. So that's why, um, after the response to my threat, I kind of chose not to respond to any more again as well, because I like don't really want to shine the spotlight too much on the wrong information side of it. So I think that's why, um, I also need to thank you guys for giving me the opportunities to to come on your platform and then to like express my side of the stories of how things are actually happening here in downtown Yangon and Myanmar. No, thank you so much for coming on, John. It's amazing to hear from you. I'm really glad we got to hear it anyway from you um, because, you know, the article infuriated us and we've been very vocal. Amy and Pan knows we're not happy on our podcast with this article because we have publicly made that clear. But, you know, I would always, you know, try to give someone the benefit of the doubt. You know, I, I'll try and believe there was good intentions that got lost somewhere along the way, whether that happened in the editing process, whether, you know, Dr. Sasa showing up was just too juicy as a journalist not to run with and they got carried away with the sensational side of it. I don't know. But I'm just disappointed that you guys were betrayed, you know, that you were left vulnerable and exposed uh, and that you all had to drop all your communications and contact with each other and go to ground um, because of it. You know, I think that that's really sad that 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 is the outcome. And the military got to publish it in their propaganda paper uh, and they benefited from it. So again, two really sad outcomes. Yeah, I mean, like when this article came out, it was just hitting all the wrong notes, right? So yeah, I don't know. I think it's a chance for AMT to like clear this up if they wanted to. Um, But I guess if they have the good intention and then it was come out wrong, I think like it's their chance to, I don't know, clear things with the airs, but I highly doubt that that would be the case. I think it was already like well-planned, intentional type of scheme that they were going for. So I think it's a chance for them to, I don't know, clear things up, but I highly doubt that they will respond. I'm also aware that, like, which is kind of the thing we didn't want, but we're also giving this article even more publicity now by talking about it again. But hopefully this final conversation on it is to, you know, put it to bed and to give the other side of the story, which the article never did, which it should have and had a responsibility to do. People clicked on it, but I don't think anyone like, you know, thought this was a brilliant piece of journalism. I mean, it wasn't. And I don't know if that's because they rushed it out after the defense of D-Day announcement if they decided to rush it because of that announcement to try and get in on the hype of that for more clicks, uh, maybe. From the response of it, I heard like they were working on the articles for months, like before it was even going to be published. But yeah, I guess they just didn't have a good intention towards any, like to come out of this article anyway, I think. So it would be interesting to hear from their response on why it was being featured on the propaganda page and then how they feel about yeah, it. Like, I didn't know that because obviously I don't read military propaganda. <laughs> just seems to completely verify all our suspicions of the article. And it just seems like that's now just made very clear what the purpose of that article was, because what else could be its objectives? I mean, it seems a pity yeah. because from looking into AMT, it looked like, you know, they had been very much you know, protesting at the start, you know, getting the message of Myanmar out there. But I'm not sure, you know, why it's ended up in this way. But it just doesn't have the people at its heart. And I think anyone who is on the side of the people must stand with the people. I'm not saying you must accept violence. You know, people are allowed to have their opinions, but you have a responsibility as a journalist to give facts. I have a responsibility of a human. If someone reaches out to you and says, this has impacted on my life, the negative, and then you respond, oh, I'm going to translate it so it reaches more people. That goes far beyond journalism to me. That goes to human character. Yeah. I can't argue with that, to be honest. I'm still trying to, I'm trying to find the good points. <laughs> trying to find <laughs> good in this, um, which is, yeah, there must be. 
Well, there's no spelling errors. <laughs> <laughs> I think from start to finish, there was a lot of insinuation, a lot of assumptions and, you know, loosely things being sewn together that didn't really, you know, the quotes didn't match the story being presented. And that's what I like. That's just my way as a as an English teacher. I would remove everything around the quotes and read them and see what meaning I would gather from them and then put the words around the quotes back in. And the quotes don't match. Like you're saying, this guy's a nut job American. And actually, when you just look at his quotes, I'm like, your quotes make him sound really nice. <laughs> like you're doing something wrong here. John, have you read the Burmese version? Are the quotes still in it? Um, I'm not sure because I didn't bother to just go in and read the whole thing in Burmese again. I'd be curious to know if it's word for word translated or if it is anything changed or anything like that. Yeah, maybe we'll ask someone. But John, what's next for you now? I mean, obviously, I know you're going to keep resisting, but we're nine months in and it's not looking like things are going to be solved anytime soon. I know it's been a good week in terms of ASEAN not letting Minang Lang attend their meeting. We saw the world's most expensive ukulele um, yesterday. So, yeah. uh, so I feel like there's been really positive things this week, which has given everyone such a big lift. But how are you going to keep going in, in the months to come? Well, for me, the next move is I am, I'm waiting for them to like storm in and do the reverse coup and then get things right. So like to give support from inside the urban area, right? So I'm preparing some of the stuff preparations that I need to do to support in case the urban, how do you call it, battles that are going to be start happening. So that's one side. And then on the peaceful side of it, I'm working with this group called Rebekans Hunter. And we are trying to produce and drop an album on the 21st of October, which is coming in next week. So, yeah, we're doing this political rap album. So got 11 tracks of Myanmar hip-hop artists fully voicing out their angers and frustrations and rapping against the hunter. I can't wait so for that. We've, we've been following these, yeah. these guys for a while. Yeah, we're very excited to hear it when it comes out. And such a great initiative. Like, I, that's what I'm, what frustrates me. What, I don't want to go back to the article, but the idea, like, there's so many brilliant, brilliant, peaceful resistance initiatives all around the country. And, you know, it, it's all, all getting lost in these terrible newspaper articles that are just not capturing the spirit of people. But that's just a great example of something wonderful people are doing that's peaceful but showing we don't accept this and we will never accept this. Was there anything else, John, that you wanted to add that we didn't ask or that we didn't get to? No, I think uh, just using this um, as a chance for me to speak out, right? Like for a lot of the Myanmar who has left the country, I think it's really important for them if they want to be still in touch with what's happening in Myanmar, they need to be actively following the news or following the affairs or like catching up with friends, families and everyone. Instead of just, you know, I don't know, going on and promoting whatever they knew, like when they left and then stop following about how things are currently happening. So I think like I just wanted to add that everyone who's been actively speaking out for us, thanks for speaking out for us and please keep on supporting us in the years to come. That's really great. Like, John, you seem like a great guy and, you know, it, it, I hate that your life is this now. You know, it's it's awful. There's no judgment from us. And, and I think that would be the majority of people in the world see what you guys are facing and like totally respect that you've got to do whatever you've got to do to survive and to get yourselves out of this alive. And, you know, there's no one judging you for that. And I think it's wrong of anyone who is. Um, they lack clear compassion and understanding of the actual on the ground situation. And as you say, taking the time to look at those hashtags, what's happening in Myanmar, following key people, not from 20 years ago like I mean they're great but they're a little out of touch with everything you know so there's a lot of new yeah. upcoming Instagram you know I can't recommend some of those Instagram guys enough because they, they're not getting paid for it they're not belongs to any organization you know they have you know they, they have good intentions you know and there's really great Myanmar outlets that are doing fantastic work as well so we just have to be careful of what we're reading and to not just accept an article that we see and do our research and you know especially if we're going to reshare it or talk about it or spread that information. We want to be very sure that we trust in it and that its intentions are good and that it's accurate reporting. Um, so, yeah, because otherwise yeah. the information is wrong and the policy and analysts make wrong decisions um, based on these articles that they read in Western newspapers. And that's the problem. Um, so, 
I think it's really, really important that we got to hear from somebody who attended a little bit more information about that article as well. But also just to, to capture, like, you know, a filmmaker is living a very normal life one day, suddenly upside down, protesting, arrested, PDF, you know, like just <laughs> your life, like just in a few months. Like, I just can't even imagine what water must be like for you guys. Crazy. Yeah, I mean, and it's uh, still an ongoing fight, right? So we're trying to keep our heads high. Yeah, we'll do. And look, we, we really wish you the best and we are rooting for you. And we're going to keep talking about Myanmar as long as people keep talking to us. You know, we're going to keep this going as long as we can. And we're hoping not for long. We hope uh, the revolution will be successful. Yes, hopefully, like, quicker than later. Everyone's, like, saying, oh, it's a long battle, long battle. But I'm like, it's not long battle if I had to, like, you know, run and, like, abandon their homes and, you know, leave their families behind and all that stuff. So it's all a huge risk for everyone who's been sacrificing in every aspect. So the quicker we can get this done and over with is the better. Thank you and Jirobong Aoyami. Thank you for listening to RNR Podcast. You can follow us on all major social media platforms. It's at RNR Podcast. Spelled A-H-N-A-H. Please like, follow and subscribe. Myanmar remains in our hearts and thoughts. We have not forgotten you. Let's keep the conversation going.